Alrighty. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah, that's pretty good. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Um, we've got a lot to celebrate this morning, actually, it being Father's Day. Um, I think in the next service, we're going to have some baby dedications. The kids are getting the Bible, get, receiving the word this morning. Uh, we get this opportunity to worship together and learn about God's word. Is that awesome or what? Uh, speaking of celebrations, did anyone catch the Raptors game this week? Okay, so we got a little bit more reaction about the Raptors game than worship and God's word, so I might need to get my other sermon. No, just, just kidding. Uh, I have to admit, I actually um, haven't watched basketball for a long time, but out of curiosity, I thought I'd check in on the score of the game, because it's this big deal. So I checked in, the, in on the game on Thursday night, and I managed to catch the last 18 seconds of the game. If you watch the game, you know those last 18 seconds took about 10 minutes with all the stoppages and plays, checking the video, um, all that stuff. So I'm not personally invested in, in the Raptors game, but like those last 15, 18 seconds slash 10 minutes were so intense that I found myself kind of actually getting excited for them a little bit. My hands were getting a little sweaty, and it was actually kind of stressful. And so when the clock finally ran out, I was actually pretty excited. I can only imagine how the diehard fans would have, uh, must have felt. And it was really cool to see all this footage from the fan zone down in Toronto. People were out on the street, they're waving flags, they're wearing their Raptors jerseys, they're all excited, and they're cheering their team to victory. And then the celebrations began. People go nuts. Facebook and Instagram are flooded with posts celebrating. Uh, for those of us, or those of you that aren't basketball fans, we're probably all rejoicing that it's finally all over and we can stop hearing about it. I apologize that I'm even bringing it up this morning. <laughs> but it's events like these that we really get to see people rejoice. People are overjoyed. They're excited to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. They get to be part of this larger community, like the whole nation of Canada was excited about this. And we get to share in this victory that we had absolutely nothing to do with helping win. But what if they hadn't have won? What if they had lost? What if it had gone to game seven and they had lost there too? Would the fans still be celebrating? Would they still rejoice? Well, no, of course not. That would be silly. We don't rejoice when someone loses. Our rejoicing and our celebrating is dependent on our team winning. We celebrate success, not failure. Yet, today we're going to be reading about someone who, by the world's standards, had failed and yet still found reason to rejoice. We're going to read about some people that we would actually probably consider to be losers, but they're being rejoiced about, they're being celebrated. We're going to read about a lot of things that went wrong, and yet God was still glorified. So before we read our passage this morning, I just want to give you a little bit of context. We're reading from the book of Philippians. This is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the Philippian church. Now Paul is writing this while he's in captivity. He's most likely under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting his trial before Caesar. He's writing to the Philippians to update them on his, on his situation and to encourage them in their situation. So that's where we pick up. This is Philippians 1. Verses 12 to 18. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest 
that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So there's actually quite a bit going on in this passage. Uh, there's this imprisonment thing. There's something about an imperial guard. There's these rival preachers seeking to afflict Paul. And then at the end, Paul caps it all off by saying that he will rejoice. So let's just break this down into bite-sized chunks this morning. First, we're going to look at verses 12 to 14, this little bit about Paul's imprisonment. Second, we'll look at verses 15 to 17, the part about the rival preachers. And thirdly, we're going to wrap it up uh, with verse 18, which just simply talks about rejoicing. But before we dig in, let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for Father's Day, for dads, um, for this opportunity to come and celebrate and worship you and uh, hear your word. Pray that you would uh, open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we hear your word, that you would draw us to yourself, that we would be drawn to Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's talk about Paul in prison. Well, not exactly prison. I would say it's most likely that Paul is in house arrest in Rome. Now, house arrest back then was a little different than it was, is today. They didn't have those cool little GPS ankle bracelets like you see on TV. I mean, there was probably a bracelet of sorts, but it would have been attached to a chain, which would have been attached to a guard, which probably would have made bathroom breaks a little awkward. And Paul wasn't just chained to any guard. This isn't just some schmutzy guard. This is the imperial guard. They're also known as the praetorian guard. Now, the Praetorian Guard, this is the highest level of guard in the Roman Empire. They actually guarded the emperor. They guarded Caesar and his family. They also guarded high-ranking officials like governors, and apparently they guarded high-ranking or high-profile prisoners like Paul. In fact, the Praetorian Guard was so influential that on several occasions they actually staged the overflow or overthrow of an emperor and installed a new one that they liked. And this is the type of person that Paul finds himself chained to every day. Now, what does Paul think of this situation? He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So you know what Paul's doing while he's chained to these guards? He's actually telling them about Jesus. He's not writing to complain about the food or that he has to be chained to a soldier when he goes to the bathroom. Rather, he's writing to the Philippians telling them that he's excited to share the gospel with his guards. He has a captive audience, pun intended. He's saying, it may look like I am chained to this guard, but actually, this guard's chained to me. And the crazier thing is that it's actually working. The guards are talking about this religious nut with everyone else that they talk to. 
Paul writes that the word has spread throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. Now, who would all the rest be? Well, that would be the Roman elite. That would be Caesar's household, the governors, the high-ranking officials, the other people that the Praetorians are guarding. At the very end of the book of Philippians, Paul mentions that there are believers within Caesar's household. So when Paul says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, he really means it. In a strange way, his captivity, his imprisonment, has actually resulted in a direct line to Caesar's household. Paul sees beyond his immediate circumstances, and he recognizes what God is doing through his trial. Now, this turn of events shouldn't actually shock the Philippian church. If you read about it in the book of Acts, you can see that what happened to Paul when he had previously been in Philippi. Any guesses? Last time Paul was in Philippi, he ended up in jail. This guy's got this bad habit of getting arrested for preaching the gospel. So when Paul was in jail back in Philippi, God came in the middle of the night. He caused this earthquake to break open the jail. And instead of fleeing, Paul sticks around and ends up leading the jailer and his entire household to Jesus. So could you imagine being that Philippian jailer? You're getting this letter from Paul. You're sitting in church, and it's like, hey guys, it's Paul. I'm in jail again. Guess what happened this time? Philippian church has witnessed firsthand what happens when Paul is put in prison. And now Paul is writing from Caesar's prison. That would be inspiring, and that should be inspiring for us too. In fact, verse 14 says, most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's example has become infectious. Other believers are seeing what God can do through an imprisoned man, and they are thinking, if God can do that through him there, then what can he do through me in my freedom? Others are looking at Paul and they're going, if he can preach while chained to a guard, what's my excuse? I find this particularly challenging because I look at the persecuted church, people that are jailed for, uh, for their faith around the world. I see these miraculous things that happen, that the church grows under some of this trial. I think that if God can make that all happen under that intense persecution, Am I wasting the blessing of living in a free country? Are we, as free people, allowing ourselves to be emboldened by our persecuted brothers and sisters? We may not face the same intense persecution. No one here is going to go to jail for their faith. And yet we have situations in our lives that seem to disqualify us from sharing about Jesus. We get burdened down with the weight of life. We've got to go to work. We've got to pay the bills. We've got to maintain relationships. There's family drama. How often do we just tell ourselves that I just have a lot going on right now? How often do we let our situation and dictate our outlook and our willingness to serve? Maybe we need to get inspired by Paul in his situation. He's being captured to stand trial. Most of us would see that as the end. That's game over. They got me. Game's up. But not Paul. He sees this as an opportunity to share the good news. And not only that, he's preaching the gospel to seasoned, battle-hardened guards. These are not, this is not the, exactly the soft-hearted audience that most of us would hope for. It would have been totally understandable if Paul had just assumed that these guys didn't want to hear a word he had to say and just didn't say anything. But he doesn't. He tells them about Jesus anyways. 
And that seed that he plants in those guards makes it all the way to Caesar's household. So you see, Paul's not defining success or failure by the way you or I might define it. He has this laser-focused attention on the spread of the gospel. So what if we started defining success and failure based on how much we got to talk about to Jesus that day? Now, I'm really bad for this. I work an outdoor job, so often my happiness at work has this direct correlation to the weather. There's this inverse relationship to the level of rainwater that happens and the level of my happiness. So when I get home at the end of a workday and my wife asks me how my day was, my answer is often weather-related. When I get to church on Sunday and people ask me how my week was, the rain or the sunshine is probably a big factor in gauging how well my week went. But what if I started to gauge how good my week was, not in how nice the weather was, but in conversations about Jesus? What if I defined a successful week as a week in which I saw God work in the lives of others or myself? That would be living with a gospel perspective. That would be living like Paul did. So I want to challenge us, myself included, that next time someone asks how your day was or how your week was, think about how you define a good day or a good week. Was it good because you didn't get rained on? Or did you see God move? Was it bad because your clients or your kids were behaving poorly? Or perhaps there was a missed opportunity to share the gospel. Let's redefine what we mean by a good day or a bad day. Let's look beyond our circumstances to something bigger than ourselves. Let's let this example of Paul's imprisonment serve to remind us that our joy comes from something beyond our circumstance. Let's let this example embolden us to speak the word in confidence, just as our passage says in verse 13, that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, of course, if we read a little bit further, we actually see that not all of this emboldening was so good. Verse 15 to 17 say this, that some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So what's happening here is that now that Paul is in prison, others have stepped in to fill his shoes. Now that Paul's away, there are other people in the church taking up the role of preaching and teaching. Now, some are doing it because they actually care about Paul and they care about the church and they care about God's people. Others are doing it because it's their time to shine. It's an opportunity for them to get a little glory for themselves, to get some of that attention. Not only that, but some of these selfish preachers are actually trying to afflict Paul in prison. Now, we don't know exactly what they means. How can they afflict him in prison? But it's possible that as the new church leaders they could be cutting off support to Paul because he's no longer officially in ministry. I also personally kind of think some of the affliction would come in where Paul's sitting in prison and he's hearing about who's running his church now and he's like, really, that guy? And yet Paul says in verse 18 that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Now that, doesn't that seem a little weird to you? It does to me. It sounds pretty obvious that these selfish preachers are preaching for all the wrong reasons, and yet Paul seems to be okay with this. 
What's going on here? Well, let's break it down. First of all, and most importantly to note, I think is that we are not talking about people preaching a false gospel. In his other letters, Paul's very harsh. He's very critical against those who preach wrong teachings. So even though these preachers are teaching with the wrong motive, they are apparently actually preaching a true gospel. Yet it seems so problematic that someone with ulterior ulterior motives would be allowed to preach. And this part part of the passage causes trouble for me because it looks as if Paul is letting these guys off the hook. But is he really? Well, let's think about it this way. These letters would be read out loud in the congregations that Paul was sending them to, and they would be passed around from congregation to congregation. So imagine that you're in a church with one of these selfish preachers, and this passage is being read out loud, and you get to this part. That some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Well, chances are it would get pretty awkwardly quiet in there. If you're one of these preachers, you would know that he's talking about you. And if it were that obvious to Paul, then it is likely that there are other people in the congregation that also know exactly who he's talking about. See, Paul doesn't have to name names. He calls for, he call, nor does he call for punishment. He simply says that there are people preaching with the wrong motivation, and I think that would cause most preachers to think to themselves, he's not talking about me, is he? Just by identifying the problem, Paul is calling those involved to examine their hearts. And this is something that convicts me as a lay preacher. I get the opportunity to preach once in a while, not at the big fancy main campus all the time. Um, But I have to examine my heart. Am I preaching because I care about the gospel or because this is my time to shine? Am I doing it for God or am I doing it for the attention? And this doesn't just apply to preaching, but this applies to any public ministry, to greeting at the door, to serving coffee, to ushering. Anytime we take an official role, do we ask ourselves these questions? Do we want people to see us as involved, as good church people? Or are we genuinely serving out of a love for God and out of a love for his people? Ultimately, we're all human. We're all sinful. And there's times when our motivation is going to start to slide. We're going to start to appreciate the pats on the back a little too much. And we need this gentle reminder to check ourselves. But notice in this passage that Paul does not call for these preachers to be removed from ministry. He simply and graciously identifies a problem and rejoices in the fact that they are at the very least proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. So let me tell you a not-so-secret secret. Preachers are not perfect. Christians are not perfect. We're just people that have to put our trust in a God who is perfect. In fact, it's impossible for human beings to be perfect, and that's why God came down in the person of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus was perfect for us. All we have to do is believe in him, and we are forgiven. Just like those selfish preachers, those sinful believed in Jesus and were not condemned, so we, as sinful people, can take hold of Jesus and be saved. Now, does this mean we can just keep sinning because Jesus has it covered all anyway? Well, no, of course not. But just like in our passage, Paul identifies the envy and rivalry. He identifies the sin and leaves it there for the selfish preachers to examine themselves and work it out with God. 
If they had just kept on preaching with this look at me type of attitude, would that have actually been okay? Well, no, of course not. It's the same with us. If we admit that something is bad, if we admit that it's sinful, and if we ask forgiveness for it, but then continue to do it, are we really sorry? Are we really relying on Jesus? Or are we just trying to take advantage of a cheap grace? So Paul was not giving these selfish preachers a hall pass to continue in their envy and rivalry. Grace is not a hall pass to continue sinning. Paul pointed out the sin, he called it out for what it was, but he did not linger there, but rather pointed towards the joy of the gospel, towards the forgiveness of sins. So while Paul recognizes that God still uses sinful people, that doesn't mean that he condones sin. Now, speaking of sinful people, I was thinking about another wrongly motivated preacher in the Bible, another sinful person that God used. His name was Jonah. God told him, told Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. He told them to call them to repentance, to turn from their evil ways. Now, instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah charters a boat to the opposite side of the world. And God puts an end to that plan pretty quickly. He causes a storm, which ultimately results in Jonah being thrown overboard and swallowed by a huge fish. After three days in the fish, Jonah is spit out back on land, and he begrudgingly goes to preach at Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't care about the people of Nineveh. In fact, he's preaching this turn or burn type of message to them, fully expecting them to reject his message and burn. He does his job, he says his message, and then he goes outside, outside the town to watch the fireworks start. But then something unexpected happens. The people of Nineveh actually listen to Jonah's message. They repent from their sins and turn to the Lord, and the Lord spares their lives. And Jonah is livid. He's actually mad at God that God didn't kill the people of Nineveh. So the story of Jonah ends with him sitting in the hot sun outside of Nineveh, mad at God for being too merciful. Jonah is a prime example of a wrongly motivated preacher. He was preaching repentance, hoping that his audience wouldn't actually repent. He hated the people he was preaching to. He actually wanted them to die. And yet somehow God uses angry Jonah to save a city of 120,000 people. And if God can use this angry hellfire preacher like Jonah, that he can definitely use gospel preaching teachers, even if they have a self-seeking attitude. In fact, God can use anybody. The Bible is so full of imperfect people. We just finished our sermon series on Abraham, and I'm pretty sure that throughout the whole series, there was only one sermon that was actually about something that Abraham did right. Paul sees and he understands this concept when he talks about the rival preachers. He knows that it's not about him or them, just like it wasn't about Abraham or Jonah. It's about God. It's about what God is doing, and it's for his glory. So once again, we can see here that Paul is taking this higher perspective. He's seeing beyond this mess of church politics, and he's looking what is truly important, is that the gospel is being told. He sees that despite the problems, God is working. He rejoices that the human foibles are not hindering the gospel of spreading the good news of Jesus. I find this encouraging, because if God can use a jerk like Jonah, 
Maybe he can use me. If God can make his gospel message heard through wrongly motivated preachers, maybe he can make something out of what I have to say. If those rivaling preachers could be used for ministry, then certainly God can use any of us here, regardless of our shortcomings or our excuses. And this is reason to rejoice. Just as Paul writes in verse 18, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So far in our passage, we've seen two examples of things going very wrong by most standards. And yet, so right in terms of the spread of the gospel. We've seen Paul sentenced to house arrest as he awaits trial. He's chained to a guard at all times, yet he rejoices because the gospel is being spread even there. We've seen wrongly motivated preachers using their role for ministry for personal gain. Yet God still uses them to preach his word. And again, Paul rejoices in this. In the book of Romans chapter 5, Paul had this to say about rejoicing. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Ultimately, what Paul is rejoicing in is the hope given to us by Jesus Christ. He can rejoice even in suffering because his hope is in Jesus. He knows that the suffering is worth a reward, that it produces perseverance, endurance, character, and ultimately hope. Despite, or he knows that while it feels like the world is beating him down and he literally got beat several times, that the battle has already been won. Despite the beatings and the jail time and all the rivalry, he lives in the hope of the glory of God. He lives in this hope of heaven. Do you want that hope? Do you want to be able to rejoice even when life sucks? Well, like I do. It's hard to rejoice when things aren't going well. I'll tell you, it's hard to write a sermon after working all day in the hot sun. It's hard to rejoice when the bills pile up, when the family member dies, when life is a mess. But we have a God who entered the mess with us. We have Jesus who took on flesh. He gave up his position in heaven to live on earth and die for our sins. Now, if anyone had the right to complain about his situation, it was Jesus. He went from living in heaven to being tortured to death on a cross. And yet God uses that terrible situation to accomplish our salvation and salvation for everyone who believes in him. And it's kind of weird if you think about it that we come here on, on Sunday mornings, we sing songs like nothing but the blood, like blood, we're singing about blood, and we celebrate this death. We rejoice in it. That's actually kind of weird. But we celebrate it because we know what it accomplished. That through this one act, light was brought to a dark world. In fact, it's this act that Paul is emulating in his imprisonment. He is sharing the light in the very heart of darkness to the very seat of power of the Roman Empire. It's the sharing of the light of Jesus that brings him joy despite the darkness surrounding him. 
So often we try to brighten up our darkness by our own efforts. We try to look on the bright side. We try to see the glass half full. We take action to improve our situation. We buy shiny new things to make ourselves feel better. But this is about more than just looking on the bright side. This is actually about seeing what is really going on. This is about seeing that true joy doesn't come from better things, a better life situation. It comes from the Lord and sharing him with others. We often think that if we just had things a little bit better, if we just had a little bit more money, if we were just in a little bit better shape, if we just had that one more thing, that we would be happy. But the truth is you don't need those things to have joy. You don't need them to have a reason to rejoice. You don't need the raptors to win to have a reason to rejoice. What we truly need is Jesus. Finding the perfect life situation or the perfect church will not bring us joy. Paul had a highly undesirable life situation and he had a totally dysfunctional church. And yet he found reason to rejoice in the spread of Jesus' name. As we close uh, this morning, I want to invite the worship team back up and I want us to just think about this for a minute. What gives you reason to rejoice? Where does your joy come from? Is your joy rooted in something that will cause you to rejoice even when life sucks? Do you want that kind of joy? If so, I invite you to get to know Jesus. Read God's word, meet his people, talk to him in prayer. We have a prayer team, we have pastors up here that would love to talk with you, pray with you about receiving the joy of Jesus here this morning. Do you already know Jesus? Well, that's, that's good, that's great, that's awesome. Let's share the love of Christ with someone this week. Maybe it's someone you wouldn't think that would actually want to hear it. Or maybe it's building up a fellow believer, fellow, fellow brother or sister in Christ. What's the biggest thing stopping you from sharing Jesus with others? Is this an obstacle? Or is it an opportunity? So I went to university to study theology. I wanted to be a missionary. I ended up being a construction worker. Now sometimes I'm tempted to think that my job is keeping me away from ministry. But the truth is, the reality is, it's an opportunity to be a witness to Christ to a totally different group of people. The truth is, I lose sight of that. And I need passages like this this morning to remind me to look beyond my immediate circumstances and to see what God is really doing. So let's take that gospel perspective into our week. Let's learn to rejoice even in the hard times, even in the situations that aren't ideal. Let's keep our eyes open for God working and rejoice in what he does rather than in how things go for us. I just want to close with this, this encouragement from Romans 12. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. And on that note, let's pray. 
Dear Lord, we thank you for this example in your word of uh, how to rejoice in trial, Lord. Pray that you would teach us how to follow that, what that looks like in our own lives. We thank you for Jesus who accepts us even when we fail to follow it. Lord, we pray that you would lead us to you, that you would give us that joy that only you can give us. Teach us to rejoice in it, even in trial. Give us eyes to see opportunity where others may see failure, where we may see failure in ourselves. We thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.